Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Most Notorious contains adult themes. It is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is the Most Notorious Podcast, and I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm so pleased to have with me today Dale W. Lackman. He is an award-winning television producer, director, and writer turned historian and teacher. His book is called For the Kingdom and the Power. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. In the first sentence of your introduction, you write that this is not a clan book. Can you explain what kind of book it is? Well, it would seem obvious to people that it is a clan book because um, the kind of the context or the canvas that the entire story happens on is, is, is the clan. But I never intended to write a, yet another history of the clan. There, there are enough of those. Um, you know, the evil of the clan, the violence of the clan is well documented. Um, but this is a story more about two people who changed... Uh, American history dramatically, and it's also very much early 20th century history in the emerging communications industry, in the histories of marketing, uh, public relations, journalism, and um, it's just, um, it's remarkable how two people can affect, in a bad way, um, the history of an entire nation. In order for people to fully understand the scope of transformation of the Ku Klux Klan, Let's go back to the early days of the organization. Can you give us a summary of how the Klan began and the kind of organization it was post-Civil War to the turn of the 20th century? Sure. Uh, there essentially are, have been uh, two clans, the original Klan after the uh, Civil War, and then the, the Klan that I, I discuss in my book, which is sometimes called the modern Klan. The original Klan came about after the Civil War ended, and... Reconstruction began. Now, right away, uh, initially, right after the end of the Civil War, Lincoln had chosen a more benevolent way of, of states returning to the Union. Of course, he was uh, assassinated just a few days after the, the surrender was signed, and Andrew Johnson, his vice president, took over. And um, it, it was going to be kind of a return to the way the South was before, uh, the same Leaders in the South, the same white leaders, the planter uh, people were, would be in charge. And uh, there were black codes written, which made things very difficult for uh, the freed slaves to have any kind of a future. And uh, the radical Republicans in Congress put a stop to that, put in a military uh, government in the South, uh, which was uh, Reconstruction, and uh, the U.S. Army ran uh, the South uh, as they were rehabilitating themselves to return to the Union. And uh, this was something that the South chafed against. 
And the Klan began with a, a group of four uh, former Confederate officers who were, in most books, said that they were just basically bored. And they had all been college men in fraternities. And so they formed a society, and, and the, the Greek word kuklos means circle. So they called them the kuklos, and then clan, C-L-A-N, eventually that turned for alliterative purposes into the K-L-A-N, kuklos, kuklos clan. And initially they just enjoyed putting on uh, the sheets, acting as if they were the ghosts of Confederate dead, and going around and scaring uh, blacks in the South. But as the blacks got more and more rights, voting and others, uh, blacks were actually elected to office. The Klan became more and more violent uh, in nature and grew uh, as a result. And in many ways, it was to, to keep blacks from voting. And uh, it, it got extraordinarily violent. And eventually, uh, Ulysses Brandt's administration wrote legislation making them a terrorist group. And the U.S. Army came in and pretty much put it down. And then Reconstruction ended, kind of a brokered deal that got the American army to leave. And um, what that allowed is, again, for the South pretty much to revert the way it was before the Civil War. And, and their rights were, were very much uh, put down. And there was really, at that point, not a need for a Klan because it was kind of an organized situation in the South that, that the North didn't want to deal with um, that kept blacks in their place. But then blacks began migrating north in the Great Migration, uh, and I'll talk about that, that more in the future. But there were generations of men whose fathers had been in the Klan, and uh, William Joseph Simmons was one of those. So he decided that he wanted to create the Klan again, and in 1915 he did that uh, on uh, the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia. And uh, that is what is now called uh, the modern Klan. We definitely need to talk about William Joseph Simmons. As you said, he spearheads the, the second go-around of the Ku Klux Klan, an interesting and highly polarizing figure. So what was his background, and how did he come to be the face of the modern Klan? Well, he had uh, been the son of a, a doctor in Alabama, uh, had hoped to become a doctor himself. There, there are some... There's some information that he took a few classes at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, but nobody can find records of that. He uh, made an attempt at the military, uh, and his timing wasn't great. He didn't quite get to uh, Cuba in time to become famous in the Spanish-American War. He turned to the church, became a, uh, a Methodist minister, who was not terribly successful and was eventually uh, thrown out of uh, the, the church ministry. Uh, for misusing funds and squandering and, and, uh, and, and wasting money. Uh, and then he uh, came into the world of fraternal organization organizing. And one of the fascinating things I learned about this time and, and why the Klan was successful is this is the golden age of fraternalism. Everybody, it seemed, in the United States, men, belonged to a fraternal organization or multiple organizations. And uh, it was for a sense of belonging. Uh, there were clubs, social clubs, and many of them had the trappings of the clan, where they had special costumes and rituals and secret societies. And it was all very ex acceptable. And many of those many of those organizations still exist today. Um, I remember as a boy driving down little roads, you get to a town and you'd see a board filled with logos of all of the Kiwanis and lions and elks and moose and all of these these organizations. They're not nearly as prevalent now. They were enormous then. And, and Simmons kind of learned about this um, as an organizer for various organizations. He, he, he was said to have belonged to as many as 12 organizations at one time. But then because he had uh, what he called an epiphany, he was in a hotel room one night and he had a dream where he saw hooded figures riding across the sky, uh, an outline of stars in the, in the shape of the U.S. map. And he felt he was getting a message from God that he should start the organization. So um, that's a bit about him. It, it, he is He's the man who started this all, but he also, by character, was a very weak man, which will play into the story uh, uh, much later. He was not a very good organizer and, and a man who could be manipulated. He's a man of ideas, but as you said, he's also a weak-willed character in many ways, as we'll talk about more a little later on. It's interesting that he actually chooses to resurrect the Klan at the perfect time. 
there are a couple of pretty ground-shaking events for the American South that happened during this time that helped not only motivate him, but helped draw others to him. First was the Mary Fagan murder. Can you talk about that murder and its effects on the South? Yeah, it's uh, it's also called the Leo Frank affair often. Um, it was in 1913 in Atlanta, Georgia. And there's a lot of um, problems in the South with northern industrialists, uh, lots of problems uh, with people who were not white and Protestant like most of the South was. Uh, Mary Fagan is kind of typical of many young girls at that time. She was 13, 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, and she was working in a pencil factory. Uh, she'd actually begun working in factories when she was 10. And this is one of the problems with the child labor and, and, and all the things that were going on because of industrialism. She went from her home uh, to go to a uh, Confederate Day parade in Atlanta one day, but she decided to go back to her factory and pick up her paycheck. And she never made it to that parade because she was brutally murdered in the factory where she worked. And initially they thought a night watchman had done it, but uh, the finger was pointed at the owner of the factory, who was Northern and Jewish. His name was Leo Frank. And um, he was indicted. He was the target of, of great ridicule. It was a kind of trial of the century in Atlanta. And he was found to be guilty and sentenced to die. Uh, for the murder. Fortunately for him at that time, the outgoing lame duck governor of Georgia studied the case, figured that there was doubt, and he uh, commuted the sentence to life imprisonment and put him at a, uh, in a, a prison farm in Milledgeville, Georgia. Very unpopular move. People hung him in effigy, effigy the, the governor, as he left the state. But then one night, a number of men from Mary Fagan's hometown of Marietta, Georgia, drove cars across the state to Milledgeville, and they were dressed in hoods. And they went into the prison and took Leo Frank out, and the story is that the guards didn't really try to stop them. And they drove him across the state where uh, they hung him from a tree outside of Marietta. And the next morning, all the townspeople from Marietta came out to view the dead body, and it was like a carnival. And this was a, a, you know, a pretty strong sense that there was a lot of anger and hostility in the South at that point towards non-whites, but also northerners, people of other ethnic persuasions, other religions. And uh, when when um, Simmons actually has his very first meeting atop Stone Mountain, a number of the members of that Friends of Mary Fagan group were in the initial plan. He was also inspired by D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Can you talk about that film and what it did for Southern Pride? Yes, I have a master's in film, so I've studied that, that uh, a great deal. Uh, it was perfect timing for the beginning of the new clan. The story had been around a while. Uh, the, there was a, a both a book and a, a play called The Klansman, and uh, it had success wherever it played. Uh, D.W. Griffith was a brilliant filmmaker looking for a spectacle to film. He broke every rule. Uh, films at that time were just a single camera looking at a stage uh, of actors, and he wanted a spectacle. And, and a great deal of the story is the Civil War, so he had grand battle scenes. This movie was made at multiple times a budget of the film. It was four or five times longer than any film had been made. And he was brilliant. He uh, was able to edit in such a way that emotions were evoked. And the story is of the Klan. It's Reconstruction and the Klan rescuing uh, a white family who was being uh, beset by uh, radical Republican Union, uh, Army men, blacks, and it evoked all of those emotions in the South of saving white womanhood, of all the evils of what was going on uh, with the North. And it was playing to huge crowds. It came out in 1915, and when it got to its uh, debut in Atlanta, Simmons timed uh, his, his new organization with that and kind of propelled the organization for a number of years. So let's talk about Simmons' new version of the Ku Klux Klan. How was it different than the original version? Well, I think what, what Simmons uh, came up with in 1915 on Stone Mountain was very much like the old Klan. Uh, it was secretive. Pretty hard to recruit something that's secretive, uh, but um, you know meetings were held in, in out in the woods at, at night. There was no office of the Klan. There was nothing. So 
it was very much like the old plan. And the problem with that is that it didn't grow and that Simmons himself was such a poor organizer and, and so bad with money that it was floundering after five years, floundering badly. He only had about 2,000 members. He had mortgaged his home. He was broke. Uh, and, and literally the Klan uh, was about to die and had it. We wouldn't be talking about my book today. You explain some interesting variations in the new incarnation of the KKK, including expanding the use of alliteration and creating position titles and a hierarchy. Could you explain how that, that hierarchy worked? Well, yeah, yes. Uh, and, and what happened is there's another part of his story beyond the epiphany of the, uh, the people across the ceiling is that he, had a bad, he was in a bad car accident while he was working as a, a fraternal organizer. And he was laid up in bed for quite some time. And while he did this, he wrote the entire bylaws, contracts, rituals, everything for the Klan during that time. And um, the alliteration of the K is very important. Every single officer of the, of the Klan had uh, their title that began with a K. Very formal language in initiations, in, the, in running a meeting. So that was all there, and this comes to play later in the book. He had the foresight to actually copyright that material, which seems counterintuitive because if it's a secret society, you don't want to have copies of everything in the Library of Congress. But he did it anyway, and and later in the story, that proves out to be a a pretty good thing for him. He calls it the Cloran, doesn't he? The Cloran, yes. (laughs) And the meeting is a convocation, and it goes on and on and on. So Simmons, as you mentioned, struggles. He's a man with grand ideas, but actually implementing those ideas, he has some difficulty with. Things change when two people come into his life, Edward Young Clark and Bessie Tyler. Can you talk about their backgrounds and how they come to join the leadership of the new KKK? Right. This is, this is the fascinating part of the story. Um, Edward and Bessie are two, turn out to be two brilliant marketing minds. Yet they couldn't have been any different. Uh, Bessie, Elizabeth Bessie Tyler, uh, was born on a farm outside of Atlanta, dirt poor. Uh, we don't know much about her education. In fact, it's not, it was hard digging into things at all for her because virtually nothing had been written about her early life. But we can assume she went to a one-room country schoolhouse and, and not for very long. And uh, she is pregnant and married and has a child before the age of 16 and kind of begins a life here of very many marriages. She eventually married four times. But there's no way she should have been a part of the story because of where she came from. But she was one of these street-smart, brilliant women who knew how to manipulate men. In fact, there are quotes from some of her contemporaries that that was exactly. She just knew how to make money uh, from the desires of men. One of her businesses was she had even a brothel. But... She goes through a number of businesses, always trying to pull herself up the, the ladder in society, and um, eventually even gets into a, a fascinating story called the Better Babies Association, which happened uh, kind of a eugenics movement. It was finding the perfect baby in, in contests at giant state fairs around the country, and she kind of cut her, t- her teeth in doing public relations for that. Uh, but then we go to Edward Young Clark, who, again, couldn't have been any different. He was born into wealth. His father actually was the owner of the Atlanta Constitution at one time, newspaper. And he had a, the benefit of a very good education. He also, kind of uh, mimicking uh, Simmons' background, went into uh, the Methodist ministry. He also went into uh, membership and organizing of uh, fraternal uh, associations. He worked, actually, as a religion editor of his father's newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution, for a while. But he had all of these benefits of life, but he didn't want to work very hard. He found that he really liked conning people and got very good at that. Uh, He eventually uh, got to work in the early Chamber of Commerce movement and became the leader of a uh, organizer of a giant festival in Atlanta, kind of like a, almost like a state fair. And it was in his job in that case that he met Bessie, who was doing major uh, work with the Better Babies Association at this event. So 
they kind of came together, two very different people, but they found that they really were brilliant marketers, PR people, and they formed their own uh, marketing company called the Southern Publicity Association, and they worked a lot with major non-for-profits in Atlanta, and their biggest client was even the, the Anti-Saloon League, which was an enormous nationwide organization uh, working towards prohibition. And as timing turns out, Simmons is having a lot of problems, almost uh, completely dead, and Bessie and Edward lose their best client because prohibition actually comes about, and there's no more need to have the Anti-Saloon League. So it was a matter of timing. As, as a historian, I find timing is everything, and it just brought these forces together. And this is 1920. Correct. And Edward Clark and Bessie Tyler are in a relationship, correct? They are. They are. Uh, you know, Bessie, I said, was married. Was married four times, but she was also having an affair with uh, with Edward, who was married and, and had a son. And uh, that plays a huge role in this in this story as well. So let's talk about their new role in the Ku Klux Klan. What are the things that Clark and Tyler do to spark membership growth? Well, what what they were very good at, uh, in fact. Her son-in-law, Bessie's son-in-law, works for the firm with them. His name is J.Q. Jett. He's kind of an amazing character as well. He, like a lot of them, loved joining lots of organizations. And one of the last bits of money that Simmons had, he put into an ad in the newspaper one day for people to come and join. And J.Q. read it, decided to try it, uh, got to know Simmons a bit, and then went back to his, uh, his mother-in-law and to Edward and said, this is something we really do well because they, they worked on membership campaigns for the various not-for-profits that, that they uh, had as clients. So they went to Simmons. Simmons, of course, was absolutely desperate. And they laid out a contract that gave them an enormous amount of money for every new member they brought in. It was an 80% commission. And Simmons signed it. He was kind of uh, could do nothing else. If it worked, he had you know, the more more life in his organization. And what they did with this contract was quite remarkable. So they created a, a pretty incredible system for making money and really milked the KKK for all they could. They even cut out the middlemen and manufactured the robes and the hoods themselves. What they did that was surprising is that um, they could have focused their efforts in the South in getting new Klansmen to, to join the Klan. They realized they really had something in terms of timing. They decided to go nationwide. And what they did is they found other fraternal organization salesmen who knew how to do this. And they cut the country up into nine what they called domains, placing a head over uh, of each of those domains and then a, a head over each state within the domains. And then they sent out their salesmen called Klegels, K-L-E-A-G-L-E, and uh, I, I found a textbook that said at that, that time in the in the 20s that the job of Klegel was one of the best jobs in the United States. And they sent them out, and um, the job of it was to go find somebody to sell them, immediately pocket 40% of that money, and then send it up the chain back towards Atlanta, with each step of it taking a little bit of the money and then the rest of it coming to Edward and Bessie and to the Klan. And had Edward and Bessie been satisfied with this, and, you know, we can talk more about why they were so successful. That would have been fine. But Edward and Bessie were not terribly moral people. And they began cheating the Klan. And you were talking about um, the robes and things like that. One of the first things they did was to hire a new accountant or treasurer for the Klan. And they made sure that man was loyal to them. It's actually a guy named N.N. Fernie. And um, he was not looking for the best interests of Simmons, and Simmons wasn't looking at anything. He wasn't much of a detail man. So almost immediately, Edward and Bessie started cheating their client. And the fascinating story you're talking about is uh, the day after they signed their contract, and actually I think uh, the day we're doing this, uh, this podcast is the 96th anniversary of the day the contract was signed in Atlanta, uh, that very next day there was a new company incorporated in Georgia called Gate City Manufacturing. And the principals were a man and a woman. It turned out to be Edward and Bessie. The day, the next day, they fired the company that had been making um, the hoods and uh, and robes for Simmons and hired Gates Manufacturing. So they were 
manufacturing really inexpensively these hoods, selling them to the clan for a profit, then turning around and selling them to all the new members that they were signing out for a commission. So uh, they were playing in all kinds of different ways, and they did this in, in a lot more ventures as well. Uh, so they were making a lot of money on initial sales and making a huge amount of money, you know, kind of illegally and unethically as well. So despite the fact that they are, in essence, cheating the organization out of a lot of money, they are also really effective at increasing the membership. And as membership grows, Bessie and Edward make sure that William Simmons stays happy as basically a straw boss. But Simmons is still, as the face of the Klan, the guy who goes up and gives the speeches at their rallies, and he preaches violence. What Edward and Bessie do is try to rein in the violent rhetoric, don't they? Yeah, they they just put him in his place and they say we're writing all your we're writing all your speeches from now on. And for a kind of a fiery pulpit minister, that's something they're not used to and don't like particularly. But they began to what they did is kind of a classic PR thing. They took them from out of the shadows where Simmons had them, you know, in 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 the deep forest with their meetings. And got them an address, an office. Uh, they invited the press um, to come in and, and see their organization. They made Simmons a respected citizen in Atlanta by buying him a, a beautiful home on one of the best streets in the city. And they gave him fine, fine suits to wear. And they basically scrubbed the, the, the plan and made them seem like a good organization, a normal organization. And they wanted newspaper reporters to think that they were a kind and charitable organization, right? They even told a New York paper that they donated to Southern black charities. Absolutely. They also were very much champions of law and justice. One of their big things was to assist the police in in matters. And they just, uh, they appealed to red-blooded Americans. They said they were protectors of American women. Uh, they were Christian, very, very much of a Christian uh, undercurrent in the organization as well. So they really were good at what PR firms do today is pretty molding the message, creating uh, the image, uh, all of these to make the, the Klan more acceptable. But a lot of what is spurring on membership in the Klan is based on this deep-seated conflict at the time between blacks and whites. And it was escalating, wasn't it? Right. Blacks had been gaining in in their rights very, very slowly, of course. And one of the reasons that Edward and Bessie went nationwide was called the Great Migration. And this happened because conditions in the South were so awful, so wretched because of Jim Crow laws. There was no future for anyone. So it was not an organized effort. I've read a wonderful book on this. It really was not an organized effort, but about half of all the blacks in the South just picked up and started heading north. And they would do this by uh, going on train lines that started in the South and, and terminated in the north. Uh, I've lived a long time in the Chicago area, so the Illinois Central started in New Orleans and this ended in, in Chicago. And, and the blacks would just take whatever they could carry and get on those trains, and they would end up in, in towns like Detroit and Cleveland and Chicago and Buffalo and, and, and lots of northern cities. Because there were uh, job, there were jobs there, and you know areas that are, had been traditionally black in these cities, like in the South Side of Chicago, that's where the housing was that they were able to afford and try to be in a life. And it wasn't a great life, but it was a better life. And there were trade unions and things like that allowed gradually for blacks to get in it, and their life their life improved. So Bessie and Edward took this whole movement to those places as well, because whites were were feeling threatened by by blacks uh, in that area, and of course in the South. It, it, it just was ingrained into the culture of whites that, that blacks needed to be put down. So I guess the South was easy for them, but they saw a lot of uh, fertile ground elsewhere. And that was one of the interesting things about the book. They were actively recruiting in the North and very successful at it. What was the total membership of the Klan at its height? Well, it's, it's reported between four and five million. And this was in a, a population in the United States, uh, according to the 1920 census, census, of about 100 million. But I want to say that they, they were doing well in what you would imagine 
the Klan would be, which was an anti-black organization. But Bessie and Edward, I don't know if they were just innately knew this or if they were stu- study, uh, students of culture and society, but post-World War I America was a boiling pot of anger in a lot of ways. Uh, you had the blacks having starting to achieve prominence, but you also had at the end of the war immigration picking up tremendously. Uh, during World War I, there was no immigration. You know, it was pretty much coming from, from Europe, and with World War I and submarine warfare, there was none. The war ended, it, it was like a floodgate. And most of these people were from non-English-speaking countries, and many of them were Catholics. So they broadened their scope. They were not just anti-black, they were anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, anti-Asian, anti-Eastern European, uh, they were anti-socialist, anti-labor organizations. They were anti-everything in the country except white and Protestant. And they hit a home run. They, they found a vein of anger and fear, or mostly fear, because white America was felt they were starting, white Protestant America was believing it was beginning to lose its grip on American society. They had been dominant from the coming of the Mayflower in Jamestown. And it was starting, they were starting to lose their grip. And they were fearful. So these Klegals would go out and they would find tremendous success because whatever, in whatever town they went to, they were kind of instructed to just kind of hang around the town for a while, talk to people, find out what's going on, and basically find out what the white Protestant population was afraid of. So there was tremendous success in places like California and Oregon. You might say, why? It's because of Asian Americans there. Um, there was success in New York City because there were Jews there and there were liberals and there were uh, union organizers and uh, things like that. So they found success wherever they went by just the pulse of, of, of the white Protestant American world. So the dynamics in the leadership of the Klan are really fascinating at this time. One of the clauses in the contract that Bessie Tyler, Edward Clark, and William Simmons sign allows Simmons to fire Bessie and Edward at any point and also allows them to quit, which, of course, they have no intention of doing. There's no way they're going to leave that, that gravy train, right? Right. So they kept him fat and happy. He was not a very, you know, he was not a very um, determined man, wanted to work very hard. You know, they had him in his fine home. Uh, they paid him uh, a large salary. They just, they said, well, because in these early days of the plan, uh, Imperial Wizard Simmons suffered a great deal, so now we're going to pay him to kind of make it up, make up those, those times. So he was kind of fat and happy. Um, they made sure, even though it was during Prohibition, he had plenty of alcohol. And, and they, they just kept pushing and pushing him uh, to the background in the organization as just simply a figurehead. And uh, with every one of those moves, Bessie and Edward grabbed more and more uh, power within the Klan. Edward was already a member of the Klan as that early contract uh, as one of the top officers. But the real power in some ways behind the entire organization was Bessie. And it was an all-male organization. And yet a woman was uh, ostensibly running it. It's funny, early on there are such advocates of the anti-saloon movement, yet they're plying Simmons with booze to keep him at bay. Sure, sure. Uh, publicly, they still were. Uh, one of the the draws of the Klan is that the, the Klan was really powerful in rural, small rural America where you know, it was mostly a white population that was quite conservative and Christian. Uh, so they were very much uh, still against liquor uh, in their appeal. So let's talk about Henry Peck Fry, a man who plays an important role in the eventual demise of Simmons, Clark, and Tyler. Who was he, and how does he come to join the Klan, and why is he important in this story? In doing my research, he was the real eye-opener. There are a lot of things that I found that have never been written, but uh, uh, his background was absolutely fascinating. One of the the journalism theme in here, and I talked about the, the early histories of journalism, is that part of the downfall of Edward and Bessie is a huge investigative series run by Joseph Pulitzer's New York World newspaper. Uh, they did 23 days in a row of uh, front page coverage of the Klan, uh, and eventually won uh, one of the very first Pulitzers in investigative journalism. 
the key facet to all of that was Henry Peck Fry. And in every piece of literature that I could find, basically Fry is given about two sentences. And they say that he was a whistleblower who took information to the New York world. Turned out he, he's even much more than that, uh, and a fascinating character. He was uh, a graduate of Virginia Military Institute and a classmate of George Marshall's, the great general in World War II. And I was able to find interesting things because the archives at VMI had a file on him that nobody had ever looked at. Um, and he'd even, he had actually written, typewritten a resume that he sent to the archives up to that particular point in his life. And um, turns out that he was a lot more than a whistleblower. Uh, and, and my surmise of, of all the information I got is that he was an embedded undercover journalist in, in the Klan. So he becomes a very important figure in, in starting to unravel uh, this whole organization. So what does the New York world focus on in their stories? Well, one of the focuses was violence. So they, had, they sent out reporters all over the country to kind of list all of the Klan-related acts of violence that had been going on around the world. They also, because of all the materials that uh, Fry brought to them, were able to show a lot of the secret things to the, to the public, secret handshakes and oaths of office and uh, on and on and on. And, uh, you know, people were actually, uh, you know, riveted to that newspaper. It was also syndicated in about 12 other major newspapers around the country. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So public opinion begins to swing against the Klan once these articles about the brutal nature of their attacks are read by Americans. Yeah, which backfired in a way. When you read the book, you may remember this. Uh, one of the things that they put in was, was actually a facsimile of the, the initiation document when somebody would become a new member to show what it looked like. 
And as it turned out, sometimes bad publicity works for you, is that many people around the country who actually liked the Klan took their scissors and cut that out, filled it in, and sent their money to Atlanta and joined the Klan. Yeah. So it backfired in a way, you know, publicity could do that. But uh, it did cause a big uproar. And as you know, politicians jump on that. So there was reaction from senators, from presidents, and all these people about the horrors of this. And they actually called for action. And uh, it turned out uh, that a month after the series ended, there were congressional hearings about Klan violence uh, in Washington, D.C., where all of these politicians were saying, you know, pumping their, pounding their chests and saying, we've got to do something about this. It's similar to when President Obama reacts to a shooting by calling for gun control measures, and then some people get scared and go out and buy more guns. Right. And then the other part of it is that there are the, the people who are advocates for what the president says are calling for action in the legislation. So, yeah, it does. The public you know, goes both ways on many things. So, again, Bessie and Edward are publicists at the top of their game. What strategies do they employ to fight against these attacks? Well, when the the articles first come out, start coming out, they send actually send Bessie as fast as she can on a train from Atlanta to New York City to kind of try to to, to blunt the negative publicity. And she she comes in and she is a very persuasive person, and she kind of rules the newspapers for a couple of days with her visit, talking about all of the kinds of things. Uh, one of the things they decide to do is announce that there's going to be a new women's Ku Klux Klan and that Bessie is going to be the head of it. And it's a little bit like taking the air out of a news story, which we're, lots happening right now with the presidential campaign right now, where grabbing the news cycle is very important. It kind of blunts the negative when you go out and grab it. So they did that. But, of course, uh, a little bit of a problem happens later when, uh, as part of that series, a, a story comes out about a night years earlier in Atlanta when Bessie and um, Edward are arrested, uh, scantily clad in one of Bessie's houses of ill repute, uh, and he is a married man, uh, and uh, that story comes up, and that causes all kinds of problems for them. <laughs> so let's talk about the congressional hearings. How do they come about, and how are they effective? Yeah, it's, a, it's the House Committee on Rules, and they were uh, that particular committee is allowed to get something on the docket very quickly uh, if they choose to. So they held hearings, and Simmons is the star witness, and uh, Bessie and Edward actually are not. They're back in Atlanta. And Simmons comes on, and, and a lot of the uh, actual transcript I put in word for word because who could, I couldn't write it better. Simmons was having a grand time. Um, testifying about his wonderful plan. But then others come come forward, and uh, it turns out the Klan, it, it's very apparent that, that Simmons had no idea what was going on uh, with Edward and Bessie and, and all of that. But, as I think often happens in Washington, absolutely nothing comes of this. And one of the reasons, again, is Edward and Bessie. They have a friend in Congress, a guy who used to work with the Anti-Saloon League, a Georgia congressman called uh, Upshaw, and they get him to write another potential uh, piece of legislation that would uh, require every state in the union to send the leaders of all their fraternal organizations, like the Klan, to come in and testify and make their records open. And that very quickly ends anything that's going to happen to the Klan because every member of Congress is part of many of these groups. They would have big problems getting reelected again if uh, all the dirty laundry and everything from all of these other groups would would be open as well. So it's very effective, a uh, little kind of a quick step by Betsy and Edward to, to blunt that entire legislation potentially. So they're really good at what they do. They're able to counter the government and the press, stop the bleeding, temporarily anyway. But the real trouble is within the organization. Can you talk about the implosion that takes place inside the Klan? Well, because of all this publicity uh, about Bessie and, and Edward and some of their problems, um, Klan membership becomes a little restive. They're, they're not too happy having a woman so involved. They're not so happy with scandal. And to keep their power, Bessie and Edward decide 
to bring in some other people in the organization. One of the guys was a, uh, a clan member from Texas named Hiram Evans to kind of um, be a bit of a figurehead along with Simmons to kind of make everybody happy out in the clan nation. And as a, as a historian, I find that there are a couple of things that almost every story in history leads to, and religion is one. Money is definitely one. And very quickly, Hiram Evans realizes that there is an enormous amount of money in this organization that they're, as they're growing, and that Edward and Bessie are getting most of it. So there is a palace coup that happens, uh, and Edward and Bessie eventually are thrown out as a Simmons. And um, the clan continues to keep growing because the organization is there, and, but uh, Hiram Evans is the guy who runs it for quite, quite some time after that. So while membership continues upwards, incidents of clan violence continues to grow in the 1920s. But eventually this violence creates a, a large and more permanent backlash for the clan, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of, the, one of the interesting things uh, that this story, how it's covered in history today, is basically uh, in a chapter in a high school or junior high American history book, there's a chapter about uh, the 20s. And in perhaps two paragraphs, they talk about growth of the Klan during this time. And they don't say much else. But they always have a picture of the Klan marching down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. You know, people are always shocked because it's an enormous thing. But it was growing like crazy until 1925. But the growth tails off dramatically after that because of not as much about Klan violence, but about corruption. There were lots of financial corruption stories coming out over clan leaders. Again, see money's involved in all of this, uh, taking advantage of the enormous amounts of money coming in. And then there were also um, some sexual acts of violence, and the most important one of those that really killed the clan was by a guy named D.C. Stevenson, who was the uh, imperial wizard of uh, Indiana and controlled a lot of other states in the Midwest. Yeah, tell us about D.C. Stevenson, if you would. Who was he, and how does he find himself on trial for murder in 1925? Yeah, he was one of a a small group with Hiram Evans who really um, managed the overthrow of of Simmons and the ouster of of Clark and Tyler. He was extraordinarily powerful uh, in the state of Indiana. A lot of people, in fact, a lot of people think the Klan began in Indiana because Indiana's had an extremely violent and big history with the Klan. But... um, he manipulated the, the, the state assembly. He put a clan governor in place. He controlled absolutely everything. But one day, he took a young woman, crossed state lines, and brutally raped her and, and, and beat her almost to death. And um, eventually, he and a couple of his associates dropped off her body at her parents' house. And... Um, she was in terrible shape and eventually so distraught that she killed herself. And it became the trial of the decade of the 20s almost. It dominated the news uh, in, uh, in every paper in the country, headlines. And, um, and he was eventually uh, you know, convicted. He actually thought that once he got convicted, he would be pardoned by the governor that he put in in Indiana. And the man didn't do it. And as a result, he was so angry that he exposed a lot of other people. Um, and the Klan really un- unraveled after that from that high point of, 20, of 5 million in 1925. By the end of, this, of that decade, it was uh, a, just a, a very small uh, entity in comparison. So Edward Clark and Bessie Tyler hold a pretty unique place in history. Two publicists responsible for a brilliant marketing campaign that actually turns the Ku Klux Klan into what the public perceives as a positive, noble entity. How does that affect marketing to come? Are there any modern-day correlations? Well, a lot of what they're doing is done by PR firms and marketing firms uh, today. It's only just gotten more and more sophisticated now. In most cases, it's done in a much more positive and professional way. Uh, there is a, a textbook of PR history where a, one of the chapters is dedicated to Clark and Tyler, and they really talk um, about how brilliant they were. They were actually groundbreaking, but that they used their gifts in all the long ways. If I, I talked to a church group, basically, about the book, um, and, and that is a theme, that they had wonderful talents and gifts that they were given to, but 
but uh, use them in all the wrong ways. I do strangely, it is, as I was writing the book, I didn't know about this, but I make uh, some very real connections to the, the Donald Trump campaign right now because essentially both the Klan and that movement are populist movements. Populist movements uh, are often a strong man, or in the case of the Klan, a strong organization. They often involve religion, and they often involve immigration. Um, as you know, what I said about the Klan is that they were against immigrants, they were against Catholics, and on and on and on. Uh, if you talk about the Trump campaign, it is basically you know, an anti-racial thing with uh, Hispanics, an anti-religion thing with Muslims, very much a strong man in terms of somebody, I'll take care of you. So I see a lot of similarities, and of course with uh, this campaign there's a lot of spin doctoring, a lot of spokesmen, a lot of messaging, a lot of imaging. So um, it's pretty fascinating when you see some of the parallels in history. So let's talk about your book. Again, it's called For the Kingdom and the Power. Where can people go to buy your book and find out more about you and your work? Sure. And by the way, the subtitle of the book is kind of telling. It's The Big Money Swindle That Spread Hate Across America. It's available through the book's website, which is kingdomandthepower.com. It's available uh, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, I do have a uh, personal website where I do a lot of blogging, and there's also information on the book. That's called History Gets Old. That's a great name. Yeah, when I, when I taught middle school history across the back of my room in giant letters above the whiteboard, it said history dot, dot, dot. It gets old after a while. And uh, I wanted to get that as my, uh, my domain, but it wasn't available. So history gets old uh, is, is what we have. And I'm enjoying writing blogs uh, about uh, pieces of history that I discover and love to talk about. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. Please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you get a chance. I'm Eric Rivenis and have a safe tomorrow.